Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. Thrilled to have you here. I want to remind you of a couple things. Don't forget about Ian's brand new workbook, The Story of You Workbook. That is the companion piece to his book, The Story of You. Hey, we've got another great show for you today. Our guest today competed in the Miss America pageant. She's a three-time contestant on The Amazing Race. She is author of the brand new book, Living Fully, and host of the top-rated podcast by the same name. And my favorite thing about her is she gets real. She gets real on this podcast. You're going to enjoy this. I'm talking about Mallory Irvin, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing. Hey, and this girl can sing, too. She ain't no joke. I know you're going to love this podcast, and you're going to love Mallory. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Mallory Irvin, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing, author of the brand new (laughs) book, Living Fully, Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. Welcome to Typology. Thank you so much, and thank you for welcoming me into your beautiful home. Thank you. On a beautiful street, and I've just loved our conversation off the podcast, so I can't even imagine how great this is going to go. Well, let's see where it goes. One never knows. All right. So tell us about your Enneagram journey before we leap into this amazing book. Yes. I love it that you love the Enneagram and loved it before it got really cool a couple of years ago, it seems like. So when everybody was kind of getting into these online Enneagram tests, I took it. Um, I actually took it like three or four times because sometimes I don't trust that those things. I'm like, if I answered this question, I could have answered it two different ways. So I took it several times and I always get a three wing two. Um, so I um, started reading into the threes and the threes with the wings. And it was pretty spot on. And two, if you read into my book, I know that three wing twos, they can either be like they can be the they are the authors and the helpers and the speakers i think like oprah and tony robbins and like all those types Mm -hmm. of people are the good three wing twos but the the um not bad three wing twos unhealthy unhealthy three wing twos are who i was at the beginning of the book which is if i'm not achieving like it cripples me Mm. and it breaks me down and i look for outside things to help me feel like i'm up and then i'm down and Right now, I feel like I'm rocking and rolling as a three-wing two. My husband, who's here, is also a three-wing two. And they say you don't want to marry your same Enneagram, but I need to ask a professional like you, is that okay that I've married him, or do I need to go in a different direction? Well, as a psychotherapist, if you want to bring your husband over, we can work on some stuff together, but I'm going to have to turn on the meter. You know, just so get your checkbook out, okay? That's all I want to say. I got it. All right, so look... Here's the deal with marriage and the Enneagram or partnership in the Enneagram. Any two numbers can do great together mm-hmm. to the degree that both of them are doing their own work, mm-hmm. growing in self-awareness and learning how to be self-reflective and learning how to face their shadow side mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, work, work it out and integrate it into their own person, right? Yes, makes sense. Yeah. So the only two numbers that have a harder time getting it to work are two fours oh and that's because fours um are always looking for their perfect soulmate Mm -hmm. 
who will uh, complete them. Right? Okay. And so if two people are looking for the ideal soulmate in the other uh-huh. and looking to the other to complete them, they are going to run around in circles. In circles. And so I always say that two fours is six weeks of great sex and 20 years of <laughs> massive disappointment. <laughs> unless you're talking, talking about a podcast marriage, in that case, Ian and I totally complete each other's fours. Are you fours? <laughs> We're both fours. You're both fours. Yes. So your podcast marriage is fine. What's your wife? She is a nine. A nine. The peacemaker. The, the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Which would probably be a good match for a four, a healthy peacemaker. Seems like it. Yes. I mean, the, the nice <laughs> thing about being married to nine is they're very steady. Uh-huh. And they're, they're, when they're healthy, they're really grounded. Okay. Um, when they're unhealthy, they, they don't like conflict, and they uh-huh. become obsessed with their own inner peace mm-hmm. and keeping the peace, right, and all that stuff. Trust me, we've had bumpy years. Yeah. And that learning the Enneagram pulled us out, at that point in our life, pulled us out of a bad spiral. Really? Yeah, for sure. And that actually fed my passion about the Enneagram was what it did for my marriage. Really? Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Too, knowing your background, like, you know therapy and all that other stuff, too. But the fact that the Enneagram was that powerful, I believe it, though. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. amazing. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you're an achiever performer. You You spoke a little bit about your early unhealthy period, mm-hmm. right, earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, how it sounded like a three gone off the rails. Off the rails. So, you know, we know that the three's core motivation is a need to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's like a, like a compulsive need to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's really important for them to appear successful to other people. Mm-hmm. Right, they want to be admired. Mm-hmm. The two wants to be appreciated. Yes, but the three wants to be admired when they're unhealthy. When they're not, you know what I mean? It's like, meh. Oh, and then they want to avoid failure at all costs. Oh yeah, at all costs, including death. In my <laughs> instance, right? Um, that is that you just described, like the two versions of people that I am in this book, mm. and um, a. Ch- you know, I was born like the oldest of 23 first cousins that grew up on. It was basically like a compound in Kentucky. I feel like you would really vibe with it. We had a, um, we had like a garden in the middle. My grandparents lived in the middle. My dad's one of six siblings and they all are dispersed amongst like all these acres. We were like feral cats. Like when we were little, no rules. No, we were just country kids. This amazing childhood. But I was the oldest of all these kids that were like my siblings and of all my siblings. And so I think if you're born the first of your, you know, the children in your family, that's one thing. But to be the, born the first of these 23, like, cousins that we were so close, I was always seen as the leader. And then I started singing at, like, six at every funeral and wedding and county fair and festival and started doing these things when I was a young person. And they were just always so proud. My family was so supportive and loved everything that I was doing. But from a very young age... I was the one on stage, and then I was the one that was achieving. You know, I did all the things you can do as a young person. I was valedictorian and, you know, the things that you can do. And it was not crippling to me. In fact, maybe I was a healthy version of a three when I was younger. And it wasn't until I went to college, and then after college, I won Miss Kentucky. And um, I won Miss Kentucky on the final year. I was getting ready to age out. And when you said the thing about you have to achieve at all costs. I remember that last year knowing this is my last shot to do this. Like I really wanted to do this. I wasn't really a pageant person, but I'd gotten thrown into this world. And then I was like, I'm obsessed with it and I have to win. And I had to win at all costs to the, to the point that it made me crazy. 
And then um, I did win. And that was an amazing year. Like, I did all these great things. A lot of people don't realize, but a pageant winner in certain states where the, they like the pageants still, you, it's a job. So I worked for the Department of Agriculture, and I spoke sometimes to, like, seven schools in one day. I did all these appearances and events, all while training for Miss America. And it was a full-time, full-time, full-time <laughs> job. It's one of the busiest that I've ever been in my life. And that's when I started to say, whew, you know, I'm running out of energy. I need, I need something to help me along. I need a pep in my step. So, you know, I was taking a prescription, an, an upper Adderall at the time. And um, that certainly helped. However, I did not need that medication. I was not prescribed because I had ADHD. I was prescribed because I wanted energy mm-hmm. and to keep going at the speed that I was going. Then eventually I couldn't sleep. So then the Ambien came in. I um, did Miss America and I was a runner up shortly after I won Miss Kentucky. I walked off that stage to a reality TV show, The Amazing Race, where you're racing around the world in like less than 30 days, flying overnight to another country, doing these crazy challenges. I went with my dad. Uh, Right out of that season, I was cast for an all-star season of that, filmed that show again. And all of that was within like eight months. And I'm from a really small community also, so a close-knit family that was watching and proud and clapping and so, so amazing. And then this community that I was like a superstar, you know? They Mm -hmm. made me feel like the most important person. That When you Google my county that I grew up in, like my name comes up, Mm -hmm. not like somebody from 200 years ago. And they were so proud and it was so amazing. They'd always put me on a pedestal. However... When I came off of that, and here I am in my early 20s, and I was trying to think, like, what is the next thing that I can do that can top these things that I've done? And they were, they were big for me at 25. And slowly over the years, as I began to grasp and not reach the things that I thought were achievement for me or for the people on the outside, I spiraled out of control for about four years to the point where... I was taking so much of this medication. Every road was a dead-end road for me. I felt like my soul and my spirit were gone. And all of that was the hunger to achieve Mm. and to achieve publicly. And I think I told you this off camera, but, like, I had a doctor look at me, Ian, and say, "Um, if you – I don't know what you're doing, but if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to die. And I thought in the back of my mind, I've had a good life, and I've done all these great things, and I would rather go out like this than let all these people know what's going on. I would have lost my life for that versus not achieving anymore or letting people in on, you know, the the thing that I thought would let people down. And um, so that is kind of my journey into, you know, what I talk about in the book, which is I, I landed in treatment, and it was I was there for almost six months of my life, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life um, because it changed the way that I think and the way that I am and the way that all of this stuff that had been building for years and years, they took the shovel out and they started digging, <laughs> and I did the most, the most amazing work, um, and it changed my life. Mm. Yeah. It's the it's the ironic paradoxical blessing of the crash. Yeah. Right? Is that uh, and and especially for threes. The th- what the one of the things that threes hate is the possibility of being unmasked. Mm. 
mm-hmm. right? And um, you know, nobody likes that, but it's really hard for the three because what the three fears is that there's no one behind the mask, that the only thing people value is the, is the pageant winner. Mm-hmm. is the, the, you know, the, the influencer, the this, the that, the surfaces. Yeah. The three things that the only thing that matters to others is my surface. And they assume that that's all that actually the value is in the surface, not in the substance. A hundred percent. Right? And yes. so, you know, I can see where, you know, if, if speed helps you, uh, taking speed helps you, continue the game Mm -hmm. then yeah you'll put your life at at, at risk Mm -hmm. right and i mean it's crazy i mean i totally get it i mean i've been i was in treatment for you know a prescription drug addiction so Mm -hmm. i i totally get it for different but for different reasons um all right you're in treatment for six months and we're going to get more and more and Mm -hmm. i think you know obviously this ties into living fully your new book dare to step into your most vibrant life and i love the fact that we're talking about failure first Mm -hmm. or not failure failure is not the right word uh we're talking about the human crash right and the blessing of the crash Mm -hmm. okay so um failure does frighten threes Mm -hmm. and i would imagine in the beginning of this part of your journey it felt like failure Mm -hmm right mm-hmm. uh that you'd let people down that they're not going to admire you anymore that you know that that you know your hometowns are going to hear about this mm-hmm. and you know the, the, everything's going to collapse and yeah. the, and of course the three is afraid as i mentioned that there's no one behind the mask you go to treatment and it sounds like you discover there is someone behind the mask i did but it took some major work and they knew exactly what they were doing with me mm-hmm. i went to a place called karen treatment facility yes. in pennsylvania I ain't getting any money for saying that. We paid a lot of money to get to say that. I know, yes. <laughs> you know. So I went, and when I showed up, so I think it's part of, too, like I still had to have that mask on and that I'm a good girl. So even though the amount of Adderall I was taking equals cocaine, I couldn't do cocaine. Like, mm. that's a street drug. I can't. That's illegal. I don't do illegal things. And I was so I was so delusional at the at the end. So... Um, I lived in Nashville. My family lived in Kentucky. And the catalyst to me getting into treatment was I was still doing the, I was still putting on the mask and I was the MC of the uh, dinner auction and the speaking places. I was starting though to unravel at the very end and people could see it on the outside. Of course, you don't think anyone can see it, but they could. So I went home one weekend and I was emceeing like an auction at a school that I went to, a Catholic school that I went to growing up. And apparently I was just like out of it. I showed up late. I was out of it. My parents were both there. And it was in my hometown in Kentucky. And they took me home, and they took my keys away. And my mom said, what is going on? Like, what is wrong with you? And that she went through my bags, went through my, got the medications out. She had known that I'd taken prescriptions, but they could just see on the outside something is wrong. And um, for two or three days, we had never had anyone in our family in recovery or to go to treatment or anything. She just Googled things with my aunt, who was in the medical field. She Googled. They found the place that they were going to take me. And even my dad at the end was like, you can get through this on your own. I don't think you need to go either. And my mom was like, you have to go. So they took me. And you know, when you show up to the place, you don't say, hi, I'm an addict. Here's what I'm taking. Here's the milligrams. Here's the time of day I take it. You know, they have to take your blood and do the, you know, they got to screen you. 
So I went back there, and as they were taking my blood, I said, are my parents still in the waiting room? Because as soon as you give them the results, they'll take me home, because they're going to see, like, I don't do drugs. And they left while I was in, the, in there, because they, you know, they knew that something was going on. And my mom says, like, when she got in the car, she said, I feel so relieved that she's there. And my dad said, I feel like I'm abandoning my child. And it just, like, shows the, the delusion that I had and then the, the difference in my, my, my family's opinion of that. But, like, I got there, and I didn't even know I, I needed to be there. I didn't feel like I needed to be there. I thought they would send me home. And about a week and a half in, as you start to – as I didn't sleep for seven days. Um, I was – absolutely miserable and when you start to feel like that when you don't have something you realize okay there was a problem Mm -hmm. I was clearly dependent on this medication so about two weeks in when my my mind started to come alive again and I felt like joy not chemically manufactured and Mm -hmm. I, I could sleep for the first night I can still remember when I could sleep I thought okay I did need to be here I was in the right place and I got to the end of the 30 day um program and me being like a three and an achiever, I kept asking them if they would send me my computer because I was like, I'm going to write a book about this. You know? I know. That I'm, is so three and crazy. <laughs> I said, I know we can't have phones or laptops, but I need my laptop. Yes. Because I'm going to write a book about this. You yeah. know, already trying to turn the crash into something of achievement for me. You know, I yeah. was two and, and a half weeks in. And make you look in. good. Exactly. Yeah. And... They even appeased me a little bit, and we're like, we'll, we'll ask. We'll reach out. You know, they never sent me my – they're not going to no. give me my laptop. Right. And so at the end of the 30-day program, I think I'm shiny and new. You know, thank you, Mom and Dad, for sending me here. I feel so much better. I did need to be here. I feel like I'm going to speak on this one day and change a lot of lives and, you know, just delusions. And I sat there with my therapist and my parents at the end, and, you know, that's where they say sober living or extended care or you're free to go. And they said, we are recommending at least three more months for you. I mean, they let the, they let the heroin addicts leave. But they said, we, you're going to be here for about, we recommend this. And I was like, me? I'm fine. I was like fine before this. I want to be magna cum laude here. Exactly. I want to I I be valedictorian of this, valedict- this treatment center. You know, my, my therapist was like, people are saying you're the happiest person to ever be in rehab. They were, they were saying, I'm, I was the superstar there, you know? I was winning at rehab. And, um, you know, there is a, a great thing about hopelessness. I didn't have anything to go home to. My, my life was really at a dead-end road. And I, I was like, okay, fine. Let's see what you got. And when I went across the street, the first thing that they did, it's so like what you would do to a three. And I opened the whole book with this. I had had long blonde hair extensions for 10 years, and I'd never gone a day without them. And they sent me to the hair salon. They said, you are doing such a good job here. We're going to give you a pass. And you can get, you know, your hair fixed. And, and, you know, it's going to be great because you're doing so good. I went to this hair salon, and I think they were used to dealing with the people in the treatment program. They probably told them before, turn her chair around. Don't let her look in the mirror. Take her extensions out, you know, and don't let her see until the end. And when they, they took the extensions out, and my hair was like two inches long, and they turned my chair around, and I saw myself in the mirror. I had an out-of-body, I've never had an experience like this in my life, an out-of-body experience, and I saw my life flash before my eyes. Mm. And it was the lowest low I have ever hit in my entire life when they took my hair out. Because the mask was gone. 
because the mask was gone mm. and I'd already gained like 20 pounds and I was, you know, sober now. So I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I'm here in treatment. Then they took my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> I can deal with almost having a seizure, but when they took that last extension out, I was like, oh no, now I'm going to do heroin. Like, look what you've done to me. You don't know what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do with people here. You're trying to make it to where nobody likes me, where I'll never date anyone again, so I don't have any problems that I could go off the deep end over. Like I said, you, I know you know what you're doing with some people, but you don't know what you're doing with me. And I almost left. I packed my, all my bags, and I brought them to the bottom, and I called my parents, and I almost left. Someone talked me out of leaving, and I stayed. And, of course, that opened a wound that we did a lot of work on for like two months. So I've been there for like three months here at this point, and I'm thinking, the mask is gone. I'm doing great. I'm actually doing great now. They've really peeled it all back, and I'm feeling good. Because here I'm like, oh, I see what you were doing even with the hair. That was really good. We got to the bottom of this. We see why I was doing the pills, why I was drinking. Thank you. And then the vice president of the whole facility one day shows up in my therapy session and we had this chapel service on Sunday, and I was the soloist. So I sang for the whole rehab facility. All the families that came in, people would say, she was Miss Kentucky, and she did TV, and I was the star of rehab. And he came in to my therapy session, and I was like, well, hello. You know, what are you doing here? And he said, uh, you know, thanks for letting me join the therapy session today. Are you familiar with the mask exercise? And I said, yeah, the paper mache mask. I did it in the first week at the 30-day program and we did it here would you like to see my mask you know i have it on my wall the token self-help activity and he said well we're going to take it a step further and you will no longer be performing um at at sunday uh chapels and i felt like a hot wash like go through my body and i was like you have i have been here for three and a half months i have done everything i'm sober i'm doing awesome how are you going to take like a good thing away? How is sharing my talent something bad here at rehab now? And I was so mad. And I went back and all my friends were there and they were like, they told you you couldn't sing? I'm writing a letter. And there were 10 of them wrote letters. And they said, this helps us in our recovery. And this is, our families need this hope because we're here. And I mean, you try and get people to fight the fights for you. And they did not allow it. And for a long time, I wondered, what in the world are they doing? But after like a few silent Sundays where I had to sit as a normal person, I did not feel, I felt average. I, 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 nothing about me was special anymore. I was not the star of even the rehab facility. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was the actual rock bottom for me. And I'm so grateful that I went to a place like that that really took it way further than the sobriety thing. Because, um, you know, I didn't even drink or do anything until my senior year of college. It was like I went hard and fast for five years or so. So the sobriety piece, it was something I had to peel that back. You know, I would have died. But there was something that had been brewing in me that was only brought to the surface because of the recovery piece mm -hmm. that I got to work through that I don't think I would have ever had the opportunity to work through in my life. And they really knew what they were doing with me. And I look back on that experience in treatment, and people say, what, was, what were the biggest takeaways from treatment? I wouldn't even put sobriety in the top three. I would say 
It was that attachment to the person that I was, to my appearance, to the person that people saw me as. Even though that I knew at that point, like that person almost killed me, but I still wanted to be her. Mm. And then it was just being seen as special and being seen as not like everyone else. Average was like the worst. Regular, I couldn't be seen as that. That wasn't who I was. I had never been that person since I was born. But it taught me it taught me so much. And it was the it was the biggest work I've ever done in my life and certainly the biggest work I did in treatment. Mm. That's why they kept me there so long. They had a lot to do with me. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting uh, for me um, in my own personal journey, which is so similar to yours. Mm-hmm. We were talking about that before we started recording. You know, uh, I can specifically remember that the moment when I realized just how much fear had been controlling my life. Yeah. How fundamentally afraid I was mm-hmm. of life, uh, of who I was, of what life was about. What was it, you know, you talk about peeling back the layers and we got down to all this mm-hmm. stuff. What was, like, if you could find a word or a phrase, like, what was the trauma? What was the fear? If was it fear? What was it that you would say, this was the wound? Like, can you just tell me what the wound was? Absolutely. The wound was fear of being average. It was fear of being normal. It was certainly a fear of not achieving, but not only achieving, but in a public facing way where Mm. everyone else could see what I was doing. I would do anything to do that, to, to have the number one spot. And for a person that has issues with a mask and titles, it's certainly probably not a good position to put a crown on their head and a banner (laughs) across their chest saying who they are with two rows of rhinestones on both sides. Mm -hmm. If you had any question about who I was, all you got to do is read (laughs) Miss Kentucky. I am the queen here. No one else can wear a crown. (laughs) Royalty, you know? And... I think that year, while that year was so amazing, I never want to, I want to make sure that like I wrote in the book the correct story because I wasn't out of control and like addicted and stuff during that year. But that year certainly fueled the fire for me. They say that during Miss America, it was a live telecast, you could walk out your, onto your back porch in my hometown and you could hear people screaming across like six cornfields. Everyone my whole life had cheered for me, had screamed my name, had sat in the front row and honestly I think too um, what was crippling to me at the end was that I felt like I'd been handed everything that I needed I had I didn't have any childhood trauma I had parents who were still married this amazing family I had done all of these amazing things I had an education and I felt really guilty that I didn't crumble under the weight of something heavier you know mm. when I went to treatment and people would say, these are the things that happened to me when I was a child. I would think that, of course you ended up here. But me, I just felt like you blew it. Like you, what a true failure you are because like they rolled the red carpet out for you. You started 10 steps ahead of everybody else and like you still blew it. And I think that that's the reason that when that doctor looked at me and said that to me, I thought, well, I should probably go like this because I don't even deserve Hmm. a second chance because look what they gave me in the first one. 
Um, and so that's a part of the other reason that I, I had to write this book. I had to write it because I'm a public-facing person now. And I would say things like, you know, I have a podcast too, and I would say, I've been through hard times, you know. And I said that over and over, and I think that opens the cracks the door open. But everybody says I've been through hard times. It's like, what is hard times? And I realized, you know, for eight years I had people looking at my life, emulating, you know, the joy that I feel on the other side of this this hard thing I went through. That's why I feel this joy today. And I wasn't telling them that story. And part of me probably wanted to stay, like, shiny and polished even though I was very pro-recovery and I knew it saved my life and I was sober, I still liked it that people saw me in the light that they did. Mm-hmm. And so it took me a long time to tell my story and write my story. And, you know, there's HIPAA laws. Like, nobody knew. Even my mom's side of the family didn't know I went to treatment. Not very many people knew. Even my, my close friends. I have close friends that read this book that say, you didn't tell what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you didn't, I didn't know that. And um, I think they're telling people your story, you know, telling them that you went through something is one thing, but like showing them, like giving them the details. I know there are so many people, whether it's an addiction or like something like that, that just feel despair and hopelessness and disdain and guilty that their lives ended up in a certain place that don't realize that like I felt like that because they see the other side and it's really hard to picture somebody on the other side of things in that place and I said I have just I have to I have to tell them about that part of my story I was like really nervous I've been really nervous like as it's been coming out because you can't delete the Instagram post and forget Mm -hmm. that it happened it's it's out and I had a friend uh, who did the forward to my book Jamie Kern Lima who's very smart and she said you know she said if you want to impress people you tell them your successes but if you want to impact people because I kept saying I want to impact I want to then you tell them your failures. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do. I want to mm-hmm. impact. The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No cost gen ed's provided by Strayer University affiliates of Field Learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. People now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, um, the title of the book, mm-hmm. Living Fully. You've just described the journey of brokenness, mm-hmm. right? Um, a journey of unmasking. Uh, a journey of having to face your own shadow. Mm-hmm. So for you now, what does it mean to live fully? Oh, that's a great question. Um, because on the other side, it certainly means a lot, something a lot different than it did. Mm-hmm. I used to think, I don't, I don't want people to confuse when they see the front of my book and they say, oh, was that the girl from here or here? Living fully is going to be her story of Miss America and the Amazing Race. That was, the, that was when I was like empty, running on empty. Mm. Living fully is certainly not this life full of all these things, especially for someone that was addicted to something like Adderall. You know, I, I like a full life, but it, it tore me down mm-hmm. to nothing. So on the other side of this, and I write the book to the person that I was in the beginning, but I write a lot of the book to the person that is the person that I am now. That life is, is good. I have two kids. I'm running a business. But 
living fully is not accepting life as fine. If you say like things are fine, you know, I think so many people think right now in their lives that like, if nothing is going wrong, that's a good life. Like the absence of bad is a qualifier for good. And I just do not believe that. I I think that a full life is one that you face your fears, you face adversity, you open door number two, even though door number one is your comfortable, familiar door. It is a much bigger life and a richer life and a deeper life, but it's a life that's much different than the one that I lived before. Uh, The one that I lived before, I needed to achieve at all costs. So if that meant taking the familiar path or doing the easy thing, as long as I was achieving, that was fine. But I know now from going through what I've gone through that when you face your fears and like when you live a different way, when you don't brush things under the rug, when, when you have tough conversations, when you like really dig in that like life is just, it's so much different. It's fulfillment, like it's true fulfillment that I never had felt before, even when things were going well. So um, living fully is a lot of things for me, but like, you know, Uh, something that's really big right now and a reason that I wrote the book is I have this family that's very obsessed with legacy and like we had quarterly meetings every year since I was a child all came together all the cousins they told the family stories they told of the stories of adversity and like all of these things and really ask us as kids like what is your legacy right now and we're like what we don't have to think about that for a long time but that was a seed that was planted in me, and it's something that I do now because I think living fully is like living in like a legacy mode. It's thinking, it's making the decisions today based on like the legacy that I want that I want to leave, how I want people to feel when I walk in a room, um, how I want to be as a parent and as a wife and as a business person. It's not waiting until the end of your life to think like what really matters to me. It's also like rebalancing your life all the time. I think with two little kids, I have a two and a three-year-old, um, imbalance can really get me. Uh, and I write about a lot of different things, so I'm like telling you all these things that living fully is now. But um, reprioritizing, like wh- what is really important to me? Okay, am I spending my time in that realm of life or am I spending it in something that's like fifth down the list? A lot of times it is. And when you get out of balance, like your life is not full your life is full but it's not fulfilled Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so living fully i wrote um at different times in my life living fully it took like a breakthrough of some sort to get to fulfillment in the beginning you know sobriety but i have chapters on fear fear is a big one for me really Mm -hmm. big when you were talking about fear like i get that fear will like run rampant in my mind and i will make a decision that i know is not the right decision just based on what i'm afraid of you know so what you say because i have this this visual in my mind about Mm -hmm. fear that i work with which is that in my head i see homer simpson with his hair on fire (laughs) running in circles inside my cranium going ah you know, just running in circles and stuff. That's fear. That's like my little, yeah. like my little thing about fear. It's like Homer him. Simpson's hair on fire running around inside my head. And I have a, uh, my sponsor. He's so great. He's so brilliant. I, I'd love for you to meet this guy. He I is would love fantastic. to meet him. Anyway, he, um, and he's got this thick southern drawl. And, <laughs> and he, he, like, I, I called him once and I, I said, I am so afraid to have this. Con- I don't want to have this conversation with a person and I'm, I, don't, I don't like conflict and it's going to mm-hmm. be intense. And he goes, well, what would you do? He goes, now, Ian, 
what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I called him and I'd have this conversation. And he goes, <laughs> and then he says to me, he goes, call me back in an hour. <laughs> let me know. Let me know how it went. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then they and hold I, you accountable. Yeah, but oh. I love the fact that, the, and I've used this question so much now. I just, when people talk to me about stuff that's on their hearts, I go, well, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm-hmm. And they look at you like, whoa, like. And I'm like, well, then I think you have your answer. Mm-hmm. Like, go do what you would do if you weren't afraid. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's so powerful, like working with fear. Okay, so you have a, you have a chapter on fear. Mm-hmm. Now I want to talk about visioning and manifesting. Yes, I'm glad you want to talk about that. Let's go there. <laughs> I know you like woo-woo things, too. I love woo-woo things. And we, we like I love that about here. you. Mm-hmm. I know. As soon as I walked into this garage and up the steps, I said, "Are you? Is that Palo Santos or incense? What you got? What you got burning up there?" <laughs> um, so I am one that very much believes. I am. I am Christian and I am religious. We're, I was raised Catholic. We go to Catholic church every Sunday. I spent, you know, in those dark days of my life, I would spend hours and hours at that church lighting candles, praying that like God would take this away from me. I'm very um i'm very religious and spiritual and i've never understood why because i have been manifesting things and visualizing since i was like six i didn't know what to call it then but i've always envisioned things there's a story in my book where i was six i think it was six or eight and i was in a talent show in my hometown and all the other like six and eight year olds were like begging for to play the games where you can win goldfish and like going to get cotton candy and stuff before they were going to perform and i was sitting there on the couch and i could see the box where the trophy was the first place trophy and i would just look at it and i would stare at it and i would picture myself with it in my outfit that i had on i would picture myself walking to my car with it putting it on the shelf and that was visualizing as a child And I started doing that at a really young age, and I've always done that. And so when I could put a name to it, and I heard a lot of people talking about vision boards and manifesting and visualization, I was like, oh, I do that. I'm good at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But then I would start talking about it in certain circles, extremely uh, a certain type of Christian circles, and they would say, well, that's not. You can't believe in God because everything is from God. And I said, oh, I still believe everything's from God. Like, but it's, don't they say, asking you shall receive? Like, seek, seeking you will, I mean, that's asking, it's seeking. Putting things on a vision board, is that not an ask? It is simply a prayer and fast forward to me. And I think that God gave us the ability to envision really great things in our lives or have Homer Simpson in our head as a fear person. And unfortunately, I think that people that are spiritual, that are Christian, and want to believe this too they're like well i gotta draw a line somewhere and i just don't think that you do so what's funny that you ask that question too is i had that chapter together i had the spiritual chapter and the hocus pocus chapter together and my publishers were like we got to split these chapters because these are two different things and i kept saying i think it is a holy thing that you can do and they were like i don't think we're ready for that you know Mm -hmm. but i still do believe that I mean, I believe that God wants us to, he loves the positive thinking. He wants good things to happen in our life. Like I, I, I just still, and I've heard the best arguments on it, do not see for the life of me how these two things are separate. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I very much believe in visualizing and manifesting and I love vision boards. I do vision boards different now than I used to. I used to do it like a grocery list where I would say, I want this, put this on there, I want this, and put very literal things on there. And now I know, because it's so much the power of just like seeing the things that you want, and it can be metaphorical. I have a lot of like metaphors on there now, but that are very strong images. And also, as a three and an achiever that wanted to fill my life jam-packed full, I would have a poster board this big, and everything was touching <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, there was no free space, but that's how my life was. And I had like, there's this, do you know Tara Swart? She's a neuroscientist mm-hmm. turned like, she was a psychiatrist for years and years. You've got to read the source. She's the first person who went from like a career in neuroscience to now she is like a, like woo woo and talks about the correct ways to manifest and visualize based on scientific studies of the brain. She said, I was seeing this in psychiatry. I was seeing this in neuroscience. The, the neuroplasticity, the, the ability of the brain to change when you think a certain way versus another way. And people in my world, like the scientific people were like, you cannot talk about that. That is embarrassing. Like, you know, we don't talk about that. That is not real. And she said, this is, I see this, that this is real. She wrote this amazing book. But I very much believe that if you are, a person who's counting it out because you feel like you need to count it out or because you're just like, there's no way that will work for me. You are leaving free magic on the table uh, and an opportunity to open up some amazing doors in your life. Like amazing. And it's your own dang fault if you're not using it or utilizing it. Mm. In my opinion. Everybody, I'm talking to Mallory Irvin, author of the new book, Living Fully, Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. And you you know, uh, Anthony, you know what I've loved most about this conversation? This is the story of a classic three. It is a crazy classic story. And it's a story, too, that I love because, you know, it's the story of a three who crashes. Mm Mm-hmm who uh, experiences what we, I'm sure what you felt in the beginning was quote-unquote failure. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. But it turns out to be your salvation. The crash becomes your salvation. And what a gift to crash so early in your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then to get to write a a book about the crash, that's an ultimate three goal, right? (laughs) (laughs) They saved my life and then I get to write the book? Like, put me on the list, you know? But, you know, here's the thing about that. A self-aware three has the capacity to stand back and kind of giggle. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the ones that are not self-aware who don't see their own game that make me nervous. Mm-hmm. You know I didn't I mean? see my own game, yeah, mm-hmm. in the beginning. Right. But when I look back on it now and I think of, like, what I – it is funny. There are funny parts in my book. Mm-hmm. I was a crazy person. And, like, I just wanted them to see me as – I still wanted to be the queen, yeah, you know? Yeah. They, when they took my crown and banner away, I thought, well, what what can I, you know, then I put the backpack on, did the Amazing Race, help the clue. Like I got to be on TV for something else. And then when I didn't have anything to hold in front of me anymore, well, shoot. <laughs> it's the best wow. thing that can happen to a three. It's the best thing. You know, I think there are best things that can happen to every single Enneagram type. Mm-hmm. But really, when all of us get... Uh, dare I use the word, exposed Mm -hmm. in our type for what's really going on, Mm -hmm. 
then is the beginning of healing. That's yeah. the beginning of life. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody, I want you to go get Mallory's book, Living Fully, Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. Mallory, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. I heard really great things about you, but you are above and beyond the hype even. And I heard a lot of hype about mm. just the person that you are. So um, I could hang out with you like all day. So well, this on. was really great. You too, Anthony. Thanks. Thank you for being here. Of course. How do people find out about you? So um, we live a lot on Instagram. So Mallory Irvin, just M-A-L-L-O-R-Y-E-R-V-I-N. Um, or you can find me, just MalloryIrvin.com. We do everything. So I have a YouTube channel, a podcast, I have merchandise, I have a book. I do everything on the internet that's like not sketchy, basically. So however you want to. <laughs> however you want to consume yeah (laughs) Kyle's yeah he's like you know if it all crashes and burns there's always only fans and I'm like okay perfect so I um yeah however you like to watch or consume content we we do it so um you can find everything there wonderful Mm -hmm. well thanks we're gonna have you back on once this book takes off we want to hear about the journey of integrating that experience into your life and uh Anthony yes Good day today, wasn't it? Oh, man. Back to back to back. <laughs> back to back to back. Good, man. Good. This was a good one to end on, yeah. right? Typology Tribe, my family, my friends, my community. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time.